Hey, good morning, church. How are we living? We're living. Let's go. It's good to see you guys. Uh, I'm Dylan. I get to serve here as a college men and young adult discipleship director. And it's a joy to get to be with each of you this morning. Um, I lead Pastor Ben. Got to uh, toss me the baton for this, this last leg of our journey through Romans chapter 8. What many theologians, people who have dug into the word, would say is the sweetest chapter in all of scriptures. And we get to the best part, to the crescendo of, of what Paul is on, all, all about in Romans 8. <clears throat> there are basically, to recap, uh, about two beliefs thematically about Romans 8. Some would say this is about the Spirit, this is about life in the Spirit, what the Holy Spirit does. Um, others would say, no, this is mostly about the assurance of God's love and the life to come. And we say to that, Porque no los dos, right? The old taco commercial. Why, why not both? This, this is about the Spirit working to assure the church of, of, of God's faithfulness and Christ's finished work. And so we began, uh, as remember Romans 8, 1, with the Spirit's assurance that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so now we finish in a similar way. Again, crescendos with security and assurance against the condemnation we may feel or the separation from God that we may fear. You ready to get after it? All right, right, we'll get into it. Uh, I'm going to start by setting the text all before us. Uh, We're going to tiptoe back into the last three verses that Ben brought last week because they so inform the verses we're going to be in today. Um, So turn with me or look on with me. Romans 8, starting with verse 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, neither angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come nor any powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Amen, church? Come on. Anyone's heart singing yet? Anyone's soul getting healed? I'm up here preaching today until someone's soul gets healed. Someone, someone stands up hour three. Uh, I, don't, I think my soul got healed. I don't know what that means, but you can, you can stop now. You know what it means to get your soul healed. Stop playing with me, hypothetical person. Um, so we see, we see this passage is about the utter security of those who are loved by God. 
the closeness, his surefire love. And for us, when we think of relationship with anyone, we can in some ways only become, at least I can speak for myself, we can become just people of the chase. We prefer things on our own terms, and steadiness and sureness and steadfastness are often secretly not really the things that we long for. And so at the beginning of our relationship with God, we might say to ourselves, okay, well, this seems like a lot. I'll, I'll, you know, I'll dip my toes. I'll see about this thing. But, I mean, it you know, seems like it's a high call to follow God. Seems like, okay, now I can't sleep with whoever I want. Now I can't do whatever I want. I can't say whatever I want. I can't go wherever I want. That seems like a really big sacrifice. And I wonder if I'll stick with this. You know, I'll, I'll see. I'll check it out. I'll try it on. But I wonder if I will stick with God. And then, as we get into relationship, as we go, we see the depths of our selfishness, the baseness of our desires, our absolute incapability to be faithful in this relationship. And we say, oh my gosh, will he, will he stick with me? This would be like getting into a relationship where you're somehow convinced you, you know, you're, you're the more impressive specimen. You're like, I'm, I'm better looking. I've got the better goals. I got more going for myself. I'm cooler. Have you seen how I look with my Ray-Bans on? I've, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, do, I'm doing this person some favors here. And then you get into a relationship and you see that this person, they're utterly humble. They're kind. They're faithful. They're loyal. They're all the things that you're not. And you say, oh, man. Well, they... Stick with me. And and we bring this question into the text with us. We wonder, we ask of this passage today, God, will he? Will he stick with us? What then shall we say to these things? All these things. Everything we've covered in Romans 8 thus far. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? God is for us, decisively. And so who is us? Us comes up eight times throughout this passage, and we comes up four times. And so we have to be sure, who are we talking about today? When we we hear us, or when we hear we, who is that? We have to grasp this if we're going to understand the thrust of this text. Who is us? Just as we've said in the preceding text, those who were foreknown, predestined, called, justified, glorified. That is to say, Christians. Those who were saved by faith in Jesus. That is who us is. This is a letter to Christians. Um, Paul opens his whole letter of Romans up to those in, in Rome who are loved by God. Right? So th- this, this, this is a Christian us. And I, I can't go into the intricacy of these words, the foreknown, predestined, called, justified, glorified. Um, but suffice it to say, this, the way Pastor J.D. grew up in North Carolina says it, is some of us feel like we enlisted in the kingdom of heaven, and some feel like we are drafted, right? But the, but the way we got here, um, what we can say definitively, if you belong to Jesus, it's because you chose him. And if you chose him, it's because he was drawing you in. And may this be a text that draws you in today. If, if God is for you must be the sweetest thing that we can hear, then the opposite must be true, that I am against you, declares God, 
must be the most dastardly, devastating, terrifying thing that we can hear. And this is the line, this is our line our God has. This, is, this shows up over a dozen times throughout the Old Testament. I am against you, declares the Lord. He says it to the enemies of his chosen people, Israel. He says it to Egypt, to Babylon, to Edom. And even more terrifyingly, he says it to his chosen people, Israel, in their idolatry, and especially to those leaders and shepherds who are supposed to be leading them into worship with God, but they're not. I am against you, says the Lord. But this text, we get God is for you. For the Christian, God is absolutely for you. And so if you're here and you can't say that you're someone who has responded to the call of God, you can't say, I'm, I'm foreknown and predestined, brother. <laughs> if, if you can't say that, if you can't say, yeah, I'm us, there are probably a lot of details to be settled. You know, there's probably some big questions or past hurt or uncertainty that stand in the way between you and being able to respond to the call of God. But here's where we set our sights this morning. Um, early 20th century French aviator and writer, I can't say his last name, so we've got to call him Antoine. Um, <coughs> here's what Antoine said. If you want to build a ship, don't drum up people to collect wood and don't assign them tasks, don't assign them work but rather teach them to long for the great immensity of the sea. And so for all of us, I'm sure there's a lot of details to be worked out, to be ironed out in our lives, but this morning, we're going to set our hearts to long for the expansive sea of God's great love. And how can we be sure of this love? If God is for us, how can we be sure of this? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? How can we be sure he gave his son? Oh, man, I I hope you carry this into your prayer time. If he gave his own son, how will he not graciously give us all things? This would be like, this would be like investing, if if he didn't do that, if, if he gave his son, but wouldn't give the next thing. This would be like an investment banker, uh, investing a million dollars, in a startup company, and then gets a call, hey, we need 100 more bucks, and said, no way, no. That's, that's, an investor wouldn't do that. <clears throat> if, they've done, if they've done the million, they'll do the 100, and it will seem merciful, and it will seem like pennies. This would be like, I'm, I'm from the country, um, so shout out Lake Placid, Florida. <clears throat> this would be like souping up a brand new King Ranch F-250 with neon underglow, with KC lights, with 15-inch sub speakers on the inside and on the outside so everyone can hear you coming down the road, with a six-inch lift kit and two-inch spacers, and leaving the stock wheels on. That's what, okay, so yeah, so, some of you get this, some are like, what did you just say? This would be, this would be like having a thousand lights in a church building and still preaching in the dark. Nah, that's kind of what we're doing right now. When I said that at first service, I, 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 thought, I, I thought someone was going to like flick all the lights on and be like, there you go, Dylan, preach, preach in the light if you want it so bad. But you get this. If God gave his son, he'll give the rest, right? Even when my experience disagrees, even when the boyfriend or girlfriend or spouse that I wanted doesn't come into my life in my time, even, even when... I wanted a raise at work. I wanted an A on the test. Or, or even 
and some really real stuff, even when, when we really wanted to be able to have children, even when we wanted our, our more fundamental needs met, cannot trust God. John Newton, theologian and hymn writer, put it this way, everything is necessary that God sends our way. Nothing can be necessary that he withholds. We can be sure that he provides because he provides salvation through his son. Hard stop. He wouldn't lift his hand from you now. He's already done the greatest thing he could do, send his only son to die. And what we do not have cannot measure to what has been given for us and to us. Amen? And so if we get that, then how do we, how do we live this life? How do we relate to others? What do we think about our security with God and how it informs the way we live in this world. Verse 33, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? That is God's chosen people. It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. And so if, if we just hang that question out there, who shall bring any charges against God's elect, against God's chosen? Paul himself would probably have a long list of answers of people who have brought charges against him. There's the Sanhedrin, there's the Jews, there's the, the people he's trying to minister to, there's the, the super apostles who, who, who bring a different gospel than the one he brought. Um, he, man, he has faced so much. Read the book of 2 Corinthians. He, he's been shipwrecked, he's been stoned, he's been in prison countless times. Who shall bring a charge against Paul? Certainly one of God's chosen. That's a long list. And for us, who will bring a charge against you. If we just leave it there, I mean, yeah, I mean, could be anyone. Could be a, a tough boss. Could be uh, an upset roommate. Could be an, an exasperated spouse. Could be your own conscience bringing condemnation and bringing charges against you. The devil himself is called the accuser, and so we can be sure he's going to hurl charges at God's chosen one. But that's not the way that Paul asks the question. Who shall bring any charges against God's elect? It is God who justifies. And so if, if the highest court of appeal possible can rule you as innocent, can rule you as not guilty, no charge against you, none of the lower courts can reverse that decision. And why did the high courts of heaven rule you not guilty? Why did the court rule in your favor? Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. You stand innocent, guiltless, as if you have never sinned because Christ stood condemned. And I mean, that's, that's, really, that's really good news for us because we are, I mean, if, we just, if we just peek half of an eye into our past, into our thought life, into what we will do even this week likely, we would see we're condemnable people, both on earth and even in, in, in the heavenly courtroom sense, we are condemnable people. I, th I think of what Ben said last week. I mean, think of like the deepest, darkest thing you've ever done that you hope no one will ever find out about, or even if, it's, if you got it all out, that it was painful to tell someone this thing, that if, that if we were to play it on the big screens, you'd want to curl up and die. That thing, think of perhaps your entire lifetime of internet search history. Think of your secret thoughts of how great you are and how terrible everyone else is. 
or maybe your secret thoughts about how terrible you are and how great everyone else is. All the things you think, all the things that you've done and all the things that you left undone make us condemnable people. But the very things that make us condemnable, Christ was condemned instead. Wow, that matters. That matters big time. How free we ought to feel, how much grateful love must be stirred up for us that we who should have been condemnable are now not because Jesus Christ himself took it. And remember, I mean, this is, this is where we started, Romans, Romans 8.1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And why? Verse 3, for God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. We stand uncondemned. And so Paul says, no one can bring charges. No one can condemn and so if God has accepted you, why do the opinions of others still rule our lives as significantly as they still do? If it's true that there's no actual condemnation left, that any charges or, or um, any charges, any condemnation are just lofty, weightless words that carry no weight, then the truth of God's acceptance should utterly change how we relate to others. I'm not saying that all self-doubt and comparison and inadequacy will just melt away if you remember and memorize these verses. But internalizing the truth that our Father who calls you approved, free of charges, and justifies you, that is core to freedom from the opinion of others. And as soon as I get that truth deeper into my crooked little heart, the better off I will be. <clears throat> Jesus died and took all condemnation into himself. God the Father confirmed his acceptance by raising him up from, from the dead, said, yes, this is the only way to have your sins forgiven, confirmed it by raising him from the dead. And in case your Jesus stopped doing stuff after he walked out of that grave, <clears throat> he's still occupying the place of supreme honor, exercising his authority to save and waiting for his final triumph. Hodge would say, Jesus continues to secure for his people the benefits of his death. Christ who died, verse 34, more than that who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. So Jesus still at work, still exercising his authority to save sinners like you and me. <clears throat> and what does it mean that he, that last part, he intercedes for us. He steps in. We can think of what Jesus said to Peter, right before Peter was going to deny him three times. Jesus said, Peter, Satan wished to have you, to sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned, strengthen your brothers. He said, when you have turned. He already, he, you know, he's, he's going to tell Peter, you're going to deny me three times. He knows. He's made intercession and provision says, you're, I prayed for you. You're going to fall. You're going to fail. You're going to deny me and abandon me. But I prayed for you. So when you're done with that, now strengthen your brothers. And Christ intercedes also for you. Seated at the most powerful place in the universe, 
the right hand of the throne of God, God himself, through Jesus Christ, intercedes for you on your behalf. And how does he do that? And what, what sort of intercession does he have? Tim Keller says it this way. says, you know, we see in the scriptures, if we, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us. So what does it mean that he is just to forgive us? He's, is he, you know, if he was merciful, and he certainly is merciful, if he was merciful, the way Jesus would walk into that heavenly courtroom would be, hey, I, I know she said she wouldn't do this again, but she did it. Um, please have mercy again. Because you're merciful, keep forgiving. Keep forgiving. I know, you know, I know he said he wouldn't, but he did it. And please, you know, keep being merciful. Keep being merciful. But we, but we see he's faithful and just. Right? And so we, with Jesus as an attorney in the high courtroom of heaven, he can walk in and say, yes, I know that they've sinned. I know on their own they would be condemnable. But God, look, I paid the price I bore the sentence on myself. And so it would be unjust for this per- person to get a, a, a smidge, to taste a bit of condemnation, because that would be double payment for one, one, uh, one sin, for one accusation. That would be unjust. It would be against your very character, God, to condemn one of those for whom Christ paid. God is for us, and he's utterly committed to the people he saved. He's utterly committed to the people he saved. Loves you with an everlasting love. <clears throat> so once we've established that, how greatly he loves, now for the most fundamental question. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? If we know in so much as it depends on him, he's going to keep sending his love. We're securing it. Jesus ha- has, has bought us the love of Jesus for all eternity. But can anything separate us from the love of God? Forget it. He'll keep sending it. Can anything separate us? Some of us are here thinking, even just the adverse of this question, <clears throat> what can connect me to the love of God? Right? I've, I feel his presence so seldom. I don't feel my life with Christ is much different than my life before Christ. I, I don't know what I'm doing wrong. What can, what can separate me from the love of Christ? Sure. What can even connect me to the love of Christ? This is good news for you. The thing that draws you in to connect you to the love of God is the very same thing that keeps Christians secure in the love of God. There's a, you know, some, some preachers will quote hymns in their sermons, and I love hymns, but I was, I was a contemporary Christian music kid, and so that's what flows out of me. Um, and so uh, the band King's Kaleidoscope has this song called Felix Koopa, uh, which is an old Latin theological term that means fortunate fall, blessed fall, Felix Koopa. So what is, what is the fortunate part of the fall? It's our salvation. It's our redemption story. It's fortunate. The fall part is our sin that made it necessary, right? And so a, f- a fortunate fall is a series of miserable events that lead to a greater outcome. And in this song, I mean, it, it's, it's a bit gory. In this song, during the bridge, the, the singer says, see, the God who lives on high, he's opened his own veins, and from his wounds, a rushing torrent that can wash it all away, grace upon grace upon grace, upon grace. The thing that connects you to the love of God 
is the cross. It is Jesus who lived the life that we were supposed to live, who died the death that we were supposed to die, went into the grave, rose on the third day, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God, and he's interceding for his own. That is, is how we gain our thing. That's how we are connected to the love of God. If we ever wonder if he loves us, if we can love him, we look to the cross, to the greatest love act in all of human history. Grace upon grace. What can separate us then from this sort of love? From the love that connects us and keeps us from being separated? Can anything? Paul drums up a list of, <clears throat> pardon me, a list of suggestions. Like a pretty, pretty good list. If, if there's things that are going to separate you from anything, these are pretty good guesses. Tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword. Yes, can these things separate us from God? And a lot of us, I mean, we, when we, you know, a lot of these words sound kind of removed from us. Famine, sword. But often when we see bad things happen to our life, tribulation, distress, things get hard. We can wonder, is God pulling his love from me? Is God pulling his favor from me? Even when we taste the very worst of these, the sword. One of, um, one of my favorite, one of my favorite martyr stories <laughs> and that sounds a little morbid. I'm like, ah, I've got a favorite martyr story. Like, yes, it's, it's better than Game of Thrones. Read some martyr stories. Um, <clears throat> one, uh, one of my favorite martyr stories is that um, coming from 203 AD, the story of Perpetua. And so this takes place in Carthage, North Africa, um, where the persecution is dialing back up. <clears throat> um, and the emperor of Rome declares it is illegal to convert into Christianity. Perpetua comes from a prominent family, and so her conversion um, is a big threat. It's, it's bound to be more influential if they don't do anything. So she is arrested, her and her brothers and some others, and <clears throat> um, soon into her imprisonment, she receives a vision. In this vision, there's a grand ladder that she has to climb, and she climbs it with ease, even though it's guarded by a dragon. And when she gets to the top of this ladder, she enters into a wide green pasture. And there is an, an, a tall, old shepherd surrounded by thousands in white robes. And the shepherd says, welcome, my child. And gives her a piece of cheese to eat. It is sweet to the taste. This is what church historians call the first and godliest charcuterie board. Um, she is, she is a, she's a 22-year-old woman, after all. Uh, yeah. yeah, I'm sorry, I had to. I, I couldn't resist it. And so after this vision, um, she, she comes to, to, to those in prison with her, and from that point on, they had no hope left in this life. And, and Perpetua, she was, she was young, she was married, she had a baby. Again, her prominent father comes in and begs her, <laughs> Think of your life. Think of me. Will you revile me and mess my life up? Think of your baby. You won't be able to survive without you. And others came and said, just do the sacrifices to the emperor. Just do the sacrifices to the Roman gods. And the only thing she said in retort to all these things is, I am a Christian. I 
am a Christian. And it is said that, that when she, was, she and, and her company were taken to the arena that day, that they walked in high spirits, singing psalms as if they were on their way to heaven. And they were. And so we bring this list to perpetuity and say, can sword even? Can, can even sword separate from the love of God? And I hope you get to ask her this one day. And so she would say, by no means. By no means. Paul, who everything on this list, he experienced and then some, even finally the sword. And so he can speak with much authority when he says, none of these can separate you from the love of God. <clears throat> James Dunn says, suffering should be seen as evidence of union with the crucified one, not a cause for doubting his love. When we enter even the worst of suffering, we can be sure that we are liking ourselves with Christ Jesus. This is not a cause for doubting his great love for us. <clears throat> and by example, um, in verse 36, Paul, um, Paul gives us a psalm. This is in the context of Israel doing battle where they had been succe- succeeding. God had, had been routing the enemy armies for them, and now the enemy armies are prevailing, and they're calling out to God. <clears throat> for your sake, we're being killed all the day long. We're regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. I'm going to take us to that psalm because I think this is, this is beautiful. It gives us beautiful prayer for how we are to react when we feel like even for the sake of God, we're living in his purpose, we're walking in his love, and we say, for your sake, we're still suffering, we're still being killed. Psalm 44, verse 22. Yet for your sake, we are killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Awake, why are you sleeping, O Lord? Rouse yourself. Do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face? Why do you forget our affliction and oppression? For our soul is bowed down to the dust. Our belly clings to the ground. And get this part. Rise up, come to our help. Redeem us for the sake of your steadfast love. The Puritans used to speak of praying prayers that God would bless red in the face not to answer. This is one of those prayers. Rise. Redeem us for the sake of your steadfast love, for your glory, for your own name. Protect your name. Save us. Remember your steadfast love. And he who gave his his only son, will he not graciously give us all things with him? The same steadfast love that the psalmist say elsewhere is your steadfast love is better than life itself. This is the steadfast love we can count on continually. That is better than life itself. And we finish this great chapter <clears throat> with an answer to all our hypothetical questions. Will God not give us all things? Will Can anyone condemn us? Can anything bring a charge against us? Will anything separate us from his love? Verse 37, no. In all these things, we are more than conquerors. I used to think, I used to read this in a very 
pacifistic way. I was like, okay, being a conqueror, obviously bad. We don't want to be conquerors. We're, we're more than conquerors. We're peacemakers. Um, but this word actually means hyper-conquerors, super-conquerors, like ultra-conquerors. We are more than conquerors, and, and that's because, you know, this isn't in the context of us exerting ourselves over other people, but this is how we endure all the ills that may come into our life because we are not promised security from suffering. We are promised that suffering will not separate us from God's love. So how do those things that would separate us from God, how are we more than conquerors over them? What does it mean to be more than a conqueror? John Piper has said it, a, a conqueror's enemies lay dead at their feet. More than conquerors, their enemies rise up to serve them. And so even these things, that threaten to separate the Christian from God's love. Now, again, remember what we read. God works all things together for the good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Even this, even this list of dastardly things, yes, even this one. These things that would threaten us, threaten to separate us, draw us in as God works all things for the good. More than conquerors, through him who loved us. Again, God's love for us is not in the past tense. And so what is Paul, who loved us? You're just saying that nothing can separate us from his love now. Who loved us is, we're looking one last time to the cross. The greatest expression of God's love ever. Him who loved us. We can know because of what he's done on our behalf. And he says, I am convinced. I am sure. And so, we, you know, Paul started with, we know that in all things. He started with a congregational. Now he makes it personal. He personalizes this. I am sure. And he's going to say that nothing gets separated from the love of God. And the reason he has had to personalize this, I don't know how much of Paul's testimony you might know, but this is a guy who was killing Christians, who was bringing the sword, the sword, the sword that he finds out later cannot separate them from the love of God. He thought he could. He was persecuting Christians, and now he's saying not even that, not even that history in my life can separate me from the love of God. My prayer is that we would become personally convinced that our past, the worst of us, the worst parts of us cannot separate us from the love of God. He says, I'm sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers. Some translations say angels or demons. And so it's just any, any ruler, any, 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 any earthly ruler, any heavenly ruler, any power, nor things present or things to come. What's happening in your life, things that are going to happen in your life, nothing that is powerful, no powers, nor height, nor depth. Psalm 139 says, Lord, if I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there even then. And then just the all call. Anything in all creation, <laughs> nothing that God has created will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so what is there left to fear? We've dealt with it all. Amen. His grace like rain <laughs> pouring down. Church, let us become absolutely convinced of this last part, that nothing can separate us from the love of God. What do you feel might separate you? What threatens to steal you away from the love 
of God? What is that thing that you have become convinced cannot be forgiven, can, can, cannot, does block you, does stand, can never be erased? What is that thing? We need, we need passages like this great Romans 8 to convince us of God's great love for us. We, I mean, man, we, ju- we just live in an age of insecurity. It's almost a universal experience for us now. Things feel uncertain, and it eats at us. Especially the fact that, man, we're not promised that there won't be temptation. There won't be tragedy. We're not promised immunity from tribulation. But we are promised victory over all these things. God's pledge is not that suffering will never afflict us, but that it will never separate us from his love. And this is the great confidence that we have as those who have been called by God. That it is not our love that is fickle and failing and weak and at times faithless. It's not our love that we base our relationship with God on. It is his love. Just strong, persevering, faithful, steadfast. And that's really good news for us. My prayer for us today is that we would just be able to hang our hats on that, that the motivating force of our whole life is the love of God, who, who didn't spare his own son, who graciously give us all things, that nothing may separate us from him. We all pray with me. Lord, we pray that you would get this, this truth deep into our hearts, um, that you would meet us in this place, that you would take on a healing work to convince us of your great love for us. Um, you've done the work. You've done the harder thing. And now, God, we say yes to you. Um, I pray for those of us going through trials, going through distress, um, going through struggles happening externally or internally, that you would meet them here in this place with this fresh truth that they are loved and that nothing can snatch any of them from your hands. Um, God, we pray that um, we would be empowered to step out with daring, to step out bravely, and to serve you, to serve others, because we have been so loved, because we have been so accepted, out of a place of security. We thank you that you sent your only son, and we can be sure that if you spared not him, you will spare no other expense. Um, Bless us in our week, um, and bless each and every one of the people here. Amen.